Oh, there it is. I thought I forgot to turn my mic on. And for those of you who weren't here at the start of the service, that was Sylvester London. And Sylvester was a part of the core team that founded the church here 17 years ago, was our first worship leader. And Sylvester, so glad that you're back with us this morning. Now, uh, one of the teachers and over the worship at uh, church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So he'll be back up later on the service to do some more. Um, as a child, uh, in our family, we were taught some very simple phrases that were a part of instilling in us some core values as kids. I didn't know that's what they were, my parents were doing, but it was. Uh, and the phrases, I mean, we, just, we knew these phrases by heart. As we grew up, the lessons were simple, but they were profound. Maybe you had some phrases in your family when you were growing up. I've seen some of your heads nod. One of the ones uh, that my parents drilled into me is, honesty is the best policy. A little more to the point, what my parents were really saying was, if you lie, you're going to get caught. <laughs> right? Um, and so they told us the story, and in school it was reinforced, a uh, story about one of our presidents. Right? Want to guess which one it was? Yeah, somebody over here said Abraham Lincoln, right? You guys all grew up in Illinois, so it would have been honest Abe, but the rest of the country learned about it, George Washington, and about the, his father's cherry tree and cutting it down. I find it really ironic that they told us a story that was completely bogus to emphasize telling the truth, but they did. The uh, story has absolutely no truth to it. Um, but we all nodded our heads, signifying we completely understood what they were trying to get across to us, that we could never, ever hope to get anywhere in politics, let alone be president, if we ever told a lie. <laughs> really glad I learned that one, aren't you? Uh, second phrase that I learned was, every action has a consequence. And so we were taught as kids in our family to think very carefully about our actions. Don't join, just join in with the crowd that you're in. Okay? Establish some values in your life. Live by those values. Okay? So we got to high school and parents helped us think about those values. Things like don't, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do drugs, uh, don't have sex. And above all, don't do that morally reprehensible thing that all the other kids are doing. Don't dance. We were a very strict religious family. So if you choose to do those things, okay, then some kind of embarrassing, terrible tragedy is going to happen in your life because your actions have consequences. So there were a lot of Friday and Saturday nights that as a teenager, I just sat at home alone. Or I sat, worse yet, with my parents because... Other kids were out doing all those things. My friends were out doing those things. So I watched, and it seemed like they were having fun. And it didn't really seem like they were experiencing those consequences in, those life, in their life. Those terrible things my parents said would happen to people who did those things. We're in this four-week series from the book of Habakkuk. In the Old Testament, we're digging into the writings and the life of this Old Testament prophet who spent his whole life living according to God's standard. He spent his life teaching and serving as a prophet, someone who received messages from God and then delivered those to God's people. 
And as we discovered last week, the most recent message he's received from God leaves him amazed, but also confused. Some of that standing amazed and confused happened to Habakkuk for the same reason it sometimes happens to us. While we're busy establishing these standards for life, sometimes a rigorous framework for living our lives, we look out and it looks like the bad guys are winning. They're not doing what we're doing and they're succeeding in life. And it doesn't only happen when cancer strikes or there's some big tragedy, somebody pulls out a gun in the schools. In fact, I find in my life it's easier to explain and understand the bigger issues in life, the life and death things, than it is to handle the incongruities and the inequities of everyday life. It's not always about a tragedy. Sometimes it's when I get tripped up when the slacker in the office gets the accolades and the promotion from upper management when I'm working really hard or when you're working really hard and you get ignored. Sometimes I get tripped up when financial challenges come and I'm doing the right things in life or when family breakups come or those unexpected twists and turns in everyday life happen, those are harder to handle. We try to convince ourselves that faith is about being happy and content with whatever God sends our way, but I'm not sure that's the full picture. Perhaps faith is really about pursuing God, pursuing Him in the middle of uncertainty. Last week we learned that Habakkuk has been praying for God to end the violence and the injustice that's all around him in the nation of Judah. And after a long period of praying and hearing nothing but silence, God finally begins to answer Habakkuk's prayers. And God's answer? I'm going to send in the Babylonian nation to conquer and destroy Judah. Habakkuk is quite simply dumbfounded by God's answer. And so now just 12 verses into this book, Habakkuk is offering a second prayer to God, and this one has a different tone. The first prayer is one of mourning and sorrow over what's going on around him. The second prayer is more of a confession to God. Habakkuk is saying to God, I am absolutely confused. And I need my viewpoint corrected. And honestly, that's a good call on his part. There were about a half a dozen contemporaries to Habakkuk. Other prophets who were viewing the same events were getting the same message from God, and they had a completely different point of view than Habakkuk did. He stood alone in his interpretation of God's message. For example, Jeremiah was one of his contemporaries. The prophet Jeremiah received the message from God, and he spoke directly to the king of Judah. He also spoke directly to emissaries from five kings of five surrounding Middle Eastern nations. His take on the situation? God's been warning you for 150 years to change your ways. So God's judgment, it's just completely fair. What's about to happen to you? You're getting what you deserve. 
So you really would be wise if you submit your life to God's judgment. And if you do that, you'll be spared. You'll live. The prophet Nahum was another contemporary. He didn't struggle with the fact that God's judgment was coming. He struggled with balancing the idea that God could judge people and be loving at the same time. Habakkuk's struggle was, how can God withhold judgment for 150 years? How can he hold all that back and still be loving at the same time? Listen to his second prayer, the softer tone in it. Habakkuk writes, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you don't plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you're pure. You can't stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people that are more righteous than them? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that don't have a leader? Are we going to be strung up on their hooks? Are we going to be caught in their nets so that they can rejoice and celebrate? Then they'll worship their nets. They'll burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods who've made us rich, they'll claim. Really? You're going to let them get away with this forever, God? Are they going to succeed forever in their heartless conquests? It's an honest confessional prayer from Habakkuk. It's a man who's wrestling with what's about to happen. It's not that he doesn't understand. He really clearly understands what's coming. And he's trying to understand it. He's wrestling with it, trying to wrap his head around it. He's asking, God, how can you be in this destruction of Judah? I think we all wrestle at times with what we're going to pray to God, how we're going to express ourselves, how to be honest with what we're really feeling when we talk to God. Can I be upset with God emotionally? Is that okay? When I know intellectually, he really does know what he's doing. Can I ask for what I really want in prayer? When I believe that God ultimately knows what's best for me. Can I tell God I'm angry with him, that I'm really ticked off when I know that I really shouldn't be? What happens if when I'm telling God how ticked off I am, a four-letter word slips out? Because that's really how I feel. I love the honesty of Scripture. I love the fact that in multiple places we get this play-by-play of people who wrestle with God and wrestle with some of the same questions we have. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. We get people like Jacob who found himself in an all-night wrestling match with God, not just verbally, but physically. We get Job, who stood toe-to-toe with God, even when he was stripped of everything he called his own, except for that wife who was nagging him to give up and die. We get Mary and Martha, who just simply called it like they saw it, walked right up to Jesus and said, The reason our brother Lazarus died is because you didn't care enough to come when you found out that he was sick. 
He'd be alive if you'd have come right away. You didn't really love him. You get the Psalms that are full of questions, complaints, and grievances against God by David and other authors. And though in each one of those situations, the questions of the individual person isn't specifically answered every time, what we do see is that God always reveals something about his character in the middle of the silence. For Jacob, God was the Redeemer. Who showed, who, who showed that he kept his promises. To Job, he showed his sovereignty and his transcendence over the circumstances of life. To Mary and Martha, he declared himself to be the resurrection and the life, and he proved it. In Habakkuk's situation, if we look at his prayer, we find that Habakkuk really gives us some rules of engagement for wrestling in prayer with God. How do we do that? How do we stay engaged with him when we're struggling with the answers we're getting or the silence? The first thing we can see in Habakkuk's prayer is that we need to stay in the conversation. You've got to give Habakkuk some credit for staying in the conversation after the first answer he gets from God. He continued to ask questions when he was confused by God's answer. Habakkuk's prayers teach us that an honest dialogue is not Bad, it's actually necessary as a part of our relationship with God. It's the pathway to an honest faith. So whatever we do, we have to keep the lines of communication open with God. And that can be hard. Because it's very tempting when we're confused. It's very tempting when we get angry with God just to stop talking to Him and to stop listening as well. So if you wonder if you'll be prone to that, think about your relationships in your life. How do you handle conflict? How do you handle tension with other relationships in your life? Confession? My tendency is to stuff my feelings and stop talking. It's just what I do. And I do it well. Um, So I have to fight that in all of my relationships and even in my relationship with God. When I don't think he's answering things or answering them the way I'd like him to, I know that my tendency is to shut down the conversation. There are going to be moments, I think, in all of us in our relationship with God where we don't really want to hang in there with Him. But the best thing to do is to stay in the conversation. Keep talking with Him. The second lesson we learn from Habakkuk feels a bit odd. We need to declare God's character as we're talking with Him. You read those six verses that comprise Habakkuk's prayer and you see that they're full of statements about God's character. Just the two first verses. Habakkuk says things like, God, you're holy. God, you are our rock. You're what we cling to in the storms of life. God, you are pure. You can't even stand the sight of evil. Now, why does he do that? He does it because when we're pressed by problems, when pain of life presses us, It's really easy to forget or doubt or get the image of God distorted in our lives. So in the tough times, it's good to remember who God is. It's good to recall what he's done in our life in the past. It's good to recall what we've seen him do in other people's lives. It's good to recall what his promises are. And there are simple ways to do that. 
I mean, one of the things we had demonstrated for us this morning is Sylvester saying that first song. It was full of things about God's character. I have a couple of playlists, one in Pandora, one in Spotify, that I listen to that remind me of God's character. The one I have in Spotify is called Not Your Mother's Christian Music. I play it really loud. It's a great playlist. And there are all kinds of songs in there when my attitude's turning south that bring me right back spot on to who God is and what his promises are to me. Reading scripture, scripture's full of declarations of God's character, who he is, frames my mind in the right perspective when I'm in a tough spot. One of those passages is Psalm 103 that says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. He will, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There are places in my life when I just need to hear that over and over and over again to remember how much God loves me. And when the tough times are pressing in on us, we have a choice to make that isn't always obvious. Sometimes a friend will remind us. Sometimes it's the nudging of the Holy Spirit that reminds us that we can either... Frame God by the problems we're going through, or we can frame our problems with the character of God. Declaring God's character keeps our problems in perspective. Third rule of engagement is remembering the difference between doubt and unbelief. And I never really have to worry about somebody who has doubts. Or questions about what God is up to in their life. I've actually seen doubt do quite the contrary. It doesn't destroy faith. Doubt can actually help people develop a stronger faith in God. But there's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. When Jesus, think about two people that Jesus encountered. When Jesus encountered the rich young ruler who came to him in the the darkness of the night to have a conversation with him. Jesus listened and talked with him. And at the end of the conversation, Jesus said, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Rich young ruler's response was to just simply walk away. He didn't press Jesus. He didn't ask him clarifying questions. He just simply walked away. He was not able to believe. Then there was the father who came to Jesus with a demon-possessed boy. When Jesus pressed him to demonstrate more faith, he had this desperation where he declared to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The father had faith, but mingled in with it was doubt. That kind of faith had him with a desperate grip on the faith that he had. He was clinging to hope even though it defied logic and emotion. Jesus didn't condemn him. God doesn't condemn us when we have questions. When we challenge him. When we 
question his actions or second guess his will. In fact, that kind of doubt can be a powerful catalyst of faith. Doubt and unbelief are characterized by two very different postures. Doubt asks God questions. Unbelief accuses God. Habakkuk, you read all three chapters, he asks God a myriad of questions about his actions. But he never accuses God. Doubt stays engaged. Belief just walks away. Unbelief just walks away. The final rule of engagement I think we can see in Habakkuk's prayer is to try to remember that we're not as wise or as loving as God is. There have been a lot of moments in my life when I've questioned God's wisdom or I've wondered about his love because of what's going on. Sometimes it's been something very personal, deeply personal that's happening in my life or my kids' lives or somebody I love. Sometimes it's something halfway around the world and I just question, what in the world is God up to? Perhaps you've been following the story in the news over the last week or so about the two Americans in Liberia who are fighting for survival against the Ebola virus. It's been on the news. It gets like 30 seconds of coverage every time it's on. The full story is not really told. These two Americans are working for an organization called Samaritan's Purse. It's a Christian organization. And Samaritan's Purse made a decision a while back to establish an Ebola clinic outside of Monrovia, the capital city in Liberia, intentionally set up a clinic to help people who've contracted that disease. One of the victims of the two, Dr. Kent Brantley, along with his wife and their two kids, made the intentional choice to go and serve in that clinic about a year ago. They've been missionaries since the 90s. They've served in a lot of places. They chose to go and serve in Liberia. Could have gone anywhere. Most recently, they were in uh, Zambia serving at an orphanage. Before they went, when Dr. Brantley was asked, why Ebola, why Liberia? He said, because I want to go where people need me the most. And so they went, and they served. Until yesterday, Dr. Brantley was fighting for his life in Liberia while his wife and two kids, his parents, watched helplessly from Indiana, unable to do anything. As Dr. Brantley clings to life with a disease that claims nearly 90% of its victims. I don't know Dr. Brantley personally. I don't know his family. But that lack of friendship doesn't keep me from asking why. I don't understand. Here's a man who has a devout faith in God, who is helping cure people who have very little hope because of the conditions they're in in Liberia, and at the same time is spreading the news of Jesus doing a work that very few people are brave enough to do. Why him? Why Ebola? Why now? Romans chapter 8, 
Paul writes, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Some interpret this verse to mean that God is going to step into every situation in our lives and make everything better. That's not what I see in Scripture, and that's not what I've experienced in 40-plus years of following Jesus. And it's hard for me, as an individual, as a follower of Jesus, to look at this situation, to look at the surface of Dr. Brantley's situation and see how God is bringing good out of this. To see how God's wisdom and love are being shown. And that's when I have to remember that I'm not as loving as God is. And I am certainly not as smart as God is. I need independent verification on that, I don't have to go any further than asking my wife. I, it seems ridiculously obvious to say that I'm not as wise or as smart as God. But usually, that's the issue when I have a complaint against God. What that verse in Romans means ultimately, is that God is carrying out his purposes in this world and in our lives exactly as they are meant to be fulfilled. That God works in everything and through everything to do that. We want God to work according to our expectations, but he works according to his purposes. We want what we think is best for us. God wants what he knows is best for us. And he has a perspective that we don't see and often don't understand. And he works on a timeline that goes from the beginning of time to the end of time, and we don't have that perspective. It's really hard for us to see and understand at times. On the surface, I don't understand Dr. Brantley's situation. But dig a little deeper, and we get a glimpse, maybe of what God is seeing and doing. In the 10 days to two weeks or so that he's been struggling with the disease, the crisis, the Ebola crisis in Africa has gotten more attention in the United States than ever before. Our hearts have been softened to the crisis that's claiming hundreds of lives. In that time period, Dr. Brantley's story is being carried around the world. Hearts are being softened. And just in the community around that clinic in Liberia, lives are being changed. A 14-year-old boy and his mother made a trek to the clinic to donate blood. The 14-year-old boy came because one of the only treatments that can help somebody with Ebola is a transfusion from someone who's survived Ebola. And in the last year, Dr. Brantley saved that 14-year-old boy's life. His life, his heart, 
has been changed. And in his darkest hours, Dr. Brantley is still showing God's love and grace. And this story has been carried. A single vial of a potentially life-saving medicine that's still experimental showed up at the clinic this week. Still don't know how. And though his condition was more grave, Dr. Brantley insisted that his co-worker receive the treatment. I don't have this all sorted out yet. I'm still following the story. I'm still praying for this family. But what I'm beginning to understand is that maybe God has something greater in mind. Bigger than what I'm praying for, for Dr. Brantley to survive. It's bigger than life or death. And as I read the family's blog, they're praying for something bigger than life or death. Because the message of Samaritan's Purse is being spread. The message of the gospel is being spread in a way that's greater than anything that happened in Kent Brantley's life over the last year. It's beginning to look like God is working through this to bring good, to achieve something greater than anyone ever had in mind before. So maybe the question is not why, God, or how long. Maybe a better question, when things like this press in on us, when life presses in on us and we don't understand, maybe a better question is, do we have the faith? Do we have the patience? Do we have the willingness to hang in there with God, to wait long enough for God to show his wisdom and his love?